Brief disclaimer, there's a scene that depicts sexual assault in this episode. Please see the episode post on mythsandlegends.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Greek mythology, and we'll return to everyone's favorite centaur-run ancient Greek hero daycare to meet quite possibly the most famous student, a boy by the name of Achilles. Then, for the Creature of the Week, we'll learn why dark, spectral demon dogs might make a spectacular HR hire for running your organization. This is Myths and Legends, episode 145, The Age of Heroes. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Omaha Steaks. This Father's Day, give Dad a gift pack with the Omaha Steaks he craves. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter code LEGENDS in the search bar for 74% off the Father's Day Steak Fix gift package. That's a $235 value, now for only $59.99. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com and type LEGENDS in the search bar and get the Father's Day Steak Fix gift package today. Today's story is another stop on our road to the Trojan War. Previously on the podcast, Paris, the Prince of Troy, abducted Helen, the Queen of Sparta. Helen's husband and brother-in-law were less than pleased about this, so they called in a few favors and began mustering an army to rescue their loved one. At the head of this recruitment effort was Odysseus, the young king of the island of Ithaca. Now, at this point, the Achaean ships are combing the Aegean Sea, looking for someone someone fated to bring an end to the war for the Greeks. The only issue? That person's mother, a goddess herself, doesn't want him to be found. Thetis looked up from the depths. The Nereid, the goddess of the ocean, began to tremble. Above her, a thousand ships choked the Aegean Sea, and she could no longer see the sky. All the Greeks had fallen in behind the sons of Atreus, Agamemnon and Menelaus, and their lackey, Odysseus, who traversed Greece, holding the men to their oaths to defend the rights of the one who won Helen's hand. They were going to war. Thetis didn't care for human troubles. Once, she had lived among them, and she even had a human husband, but she didn't trouble herself with all the creative and horrifying reasons they had for killing each other. Yet now, she was trembling. Trembling not because she was in any danger. She wasn't. She had lived before the time of humans, and she would continue to live long after they left the planet. No, she trembled because that army, the host of Greeks sailing east for some city on the edge of the map called Troy, that army was looking for someone very important to her. A boy of only 16. Her son. It was all because of who his father had been because of the men he had fought alongside. The prophecy said her son would turn the tide of war. And the scary thing, for Thetis at least, was that they were right. He would turn the tide of war. But Thetis had seen war between the gods and war between men before. It was monstrous. The realm of Ares, the butcher, and the spell to make her son immortal had been interrupted. He was vulnerable. That's why they must never find him. They must never find her boy, her Achilles.
Inside the centaur's cave, Achilles looked at the spear. No matter how many times he held it, the weapon remained too big for him. It had belonged to a man who had always loomed over him like a god. His father, Peleus. His father who married a goddess, fought alongside men like Theseus, Hercules, Jason. His father who had helped bring back the golden fleece. And the same father who had raised him after his mother abandoned them. The same father he had loved and watched die of illness. Achilles stood by the spear. It was the only thing he thought to grab when the centaur came for him, mere moments after Peleus died. He had been just ten. Chiron, the centaur, had looked after Peleus once upon a time. Proudly, Chiron had trained every hero of note over the past fifty years. Now, though, there were only two. Achilles, son of Peleus, and a boy named Patroclus. Patroclus was a few years older than Achilles, but the boys had been close for nearly as long as Achilles could remember. When he was a child, Patroclus had killed another child in anger over a game, and Patroclus was forced out of his home. Patroclus' father had been a fellow Argonaut, and so he asked Peleus to look after his son. Neither of them knew the arrangement Peleus had made until after he was dead. Both boys, despite losing the only father either of them had ever really known, couldn't help but be excited. They would be training with Chiron, the legendary centaur. In their training, Achilles and Patroclus learned all manner of fighting. Sword, spear, standing on Chiron's back as he galloped and shooting arrows. But they also learned strategy, wilderness survival, and so much more. Chiron fed the boys in the innards of lions and boars, and on the marrow of she-wolves to make them strong. So, if you're looking for a healthy diet for your child, there you go. But something was different about old Chiron. At first, the boys were in awe of him. But, as the years passed, they began to see him as he really was. The centaur kindergarten teacher, he was growing old, weary. Achilles would often catch him staring off across the plains by his house. The boys' training continued until they were no longer boys, but young men who knew each question Chiron would ask before he said a word, and each lesson before he reviewed it. At last, their training was complete. Then, he arrived. Achilles had been raised by heroes, and the lesser Argonauts had visited his home before his father died. But this, this was a hero. Hercules, the son of Zeus and Alcmene, strode past Achilles and took a seat at Chiron's table. The young men couldn't believe it. Hercules was a legend among legends. The man was an Argonaut and wore the skin of the Nemean lion. He'd killed the Hydra, took Hera's golden apples, traveled the known world, fought alongside the Olympians themselves. The list went on. He was also Chiron's most famous student, and he'd returned for the first time since his boyhood training. Chiron waited for Achilles and Patroclus to bring over the wine. At the arrival of his former student, Chiron had come alive basking in the exploits of his best pupil as Hercules gushed over every detail like a child, telling Chiron exactly how his training had helped him in every labor. Hercules showed Chiron the Nemean lion cloak, impenetrable, the Hydra poison-coated arrows, deadly with a scratch, and... The room froze as the old centaur's fingers fumbled the arrow. No one dared to take a breath as it tumbled, point down, toward the floor, and it stuck in Chiron's hoof.
Hercules breathed and smiled. Whew, the Delphicorcor had told him he would be immortal after his labors. He still had one more to go. Luckily, the arrow fell on the one person in the room who couldn't die. It was a good thing the centaur was immortal. A cough broke the silence as Chiron's blood spewed onto the table before them all. Chiron, you're immortal, right? Hercules stammered. The man who had killed countless beasts, fought sea monsters and Amazons, now began to shake. Chiron gestured to the young man, but Achilles was already on it. By the time he raised his hand to point to the cupboard with his healing herbs, Achilles was back, grinding them in the mortar. At two on account of three, Achilles yanked the arrow from the hoof and set it aside carefully before packing the wound with herbs. He tore some cloth and made a bandage as Patroclus muddled another mixture and brought it to his teacher's mouth. The only one in this room who had ever seen actual mortal danger, the greatest hero who had ever lived, now sat immobile, frozen in terror. What was going on? Chiron was supposed to be immortal. As the herbs began to work, Chiron said that he once had an old friend. He turned to Achilles and Patroclus, the two who might not know the story, and explained. A man, a titan named Prometheus, had been banished by Zeus for bringing fire to the humans and left chained to a rock where Zeus's eagle tore open his side daily and devoured his liver, only to have it heal every night for the next morning's eagle brunch. He had endured the torture for eons until Hercules. Hercules nodded. Yeah, he freed Prometheus, killed the eagle, and ended the punishment. Chiron shook his head. Hercules had freed Prometheus, but he hadn't ended the punishment. Zeus still wanted Prometheus to suffer, but since his favorite son had freed the man, the whole thing gave Chiron, the wisest centaur in the world, though that's a shockingly low bar, an opening to plead on behalf of his old friend. A price still had to be paid, and Chiron paid that price willingly and gladly. He'd given up his immortality for his friend's freedom. Chiron coughed again, hard. The herbs would only work to delay the poison. Hydropoison was particularly insidious. It didn't just kill the body, it mingled with the blood, turning the blood itself into more hydropoison. The herbs halted the initial spread, but there was still enough in him to kill a whole pack of centaurs. Hercules shook his head. He wouldn't know anything about that. Chiron sat back and swallowed hard, and then he chuckled. He had wondered. He had wondered if Achilles and Patroclus would be his final students. Zeus had promised him long ago that as long as there were heroes to train, he would exist in this world. He turned to Achilles and Patroclus with a sad smile. It seemed the age of heroes was coming to an end. They were the last of their kind. He coughed again before continuing. A time would come when they would do great feats, and their names would live on forever, echoing down through the generations. And when that time came, the boys would make Chiron very proud. Chiron lingered on for nine more days as the hydropoison slowly overpowered medicine. Achilles and Patroclus wept for their wise teacher. Hercules had stayed, though 
he'd mostly brooded in the corner, unsure of what to do or say. When Chiron finally passed, Hercules left without a word. After the flames died down and Chiron's funeral pyre was little more than a pile of embers, Patroclus sat down next to Achilles and put his arm around him. The cheeks of both young men streaked with tears. Patroclus took a deep breath and looked to the sky as he exhaled. Wait a minute. Patroclus cocked his head. Huh. Did, did Achilles remember that? He asked, pointing into the air. Achilles looked at Patroclus, following his point up to the stars. In the heavens above, there were new stars. Achilles raised his fingers and traced them, confirming what Patroclus already knew. It was a centaur. Chiron. For the first time in ten days, the boy smiled. Zeus had rewarded Chiron for his years of work, training the greatest heroes the world had ever known. He had wrapped Chiron's body in stars, as Ovid says, and Chiron would live forever as the constellation Centaurus, one of the largest, most prominent constellations in the sky. That night, Achilles fell asleep there in Patroclus' arms. It was the last time he would see the boy before the war. When Achilles woke, he wasn't on Mount Pelion, the place where he had lived for the last seven years. and He was no longer next to Patroclus. Instead, he found himself on a massive shell, skimming the waves on the open ocean, on a chariot pulled by dolphins and driven by a woman that he only half remembered from dreams. Achilles steadied himself as he sat up. He looked up to the woman, her feet planted on two dolphins while she drove two more. She turned and nodded. Achilles managed one word for the person who'd abandoned him and his father when he was only a newborn. Mom? We'll catch up with Achilles and his mom, but that will be right after this. They came to a stop on a shell-strewn beach, and Achilles stepped from the shell as his mother dragged it across the sand. On the horizon ahead, green mountains loomed. His mother built a fire and eyed the mountains warily. No one should be on this side but she could never be too careful. Not now. The fish sizzled as Thetis offered her son something to eat. Achilles didn't want it, though. He didn't want any of it. He didn't even know her. He wanted to go back to his life that he knew, back to Patroclus and Chiron. He stopped himself. Chiron was dead. Thetis ignored the outburst. If she had married who she was supposed to marry, he would be on Olympus now. He would be immortal might even be the king of the gods someday. But now? Now I want to go home, Achilles interrupted. Thetis stood and stared down her son. Home? His father was dead. Chiron was dead. Patroclus was gone. She was now his home. She sighed. This was his home now. Because they were looking for him. She looked out to the sea. A storm cloud gathered on the horizon. But Achilles? Achilles was one of the few men who would be able to weather it. Because he was her son. The nations, 
the gods themselves were going to war, a war that would consume the last of the heroes one way or another, including Achilles. Thetis had armored him at birth, but even that might not be enough. This was all a lot for anyone to take in, and as Achilles stood on the beach looking across the water, thought after thought began to hit him like the waves on the shore. He was trained by Chiron, yes, but Chiron was now dead. His father was dead. All that remained to him in this world was his mother. And she said that he wasn't ready. And he, he believed her. He remembered his father's spear. He nodded to his mother. Okay. He would do what it took to stay away from war with the Trojans. Mother and son stood unified, hand in hand. Good. Their first objective was to make it into town, into the city of King Lycomedes on the island of Syros. In all likelihood, the procession had already started. Achilles and Thetis watched the procession of Lycomedes' daughters from the cover of a nearby alleyway. Achilles was struck. They were beautiful. He took a step, wanting to follow them into the palace, but his mother placed a hand on his shoulder. She was unclasping her necklace when he turned around to face her. Achilles couldn't go into the palace, not looking like that. By the time Achilles reached the palace, the transformation was complete. His chest was covered, his hair let down, and he wore his mother's necklace. When Thetis announced him, she didn't announce him, but instead, Achilles' heretofore unmentioned sister. Thetis, it seemed, was looking for a place to foster her daughter. The girl stood like an Amazon or Atalanta, already a foot taller than her peers. Thetis had enough problems with her son, Achilles. The Greeks were out in force, looking for him, trying to draft him into their war. She didn't want any more headaches with her daughter. She asked the king to keep the girl away from spears and men, that he not let the girl practice naked in the gymnasium or wander in the woods, keep her indoors, secluded with the other girls. Don't ever let her near the harbor. The Trojans were out, and though she was no Helen of Sparta, you never knew what might happen. With an anxious smile, King Lycomedes asked no questions. He didn't want to risk Thetis withdrawing this huge honor. The fact that he the king of a city on an island in the middle of the Aegean would be asked to foster the daughter of a goddess was unheard of. Hesitantly, Achilles joined in the ritual dance with the other girls, while Thetis stood on the edges of the crowd. She wanted nothing more than to stay here on Syros with him, but her mere presence would surely be enough to draw the world's attention to this island. A tear trickled down her cheek, and she brushed it aside. She must leave him. Again, her only hope was that he would be able to forgive her. Forcing herself away, Thetis stepped into the sea, turning back to the sand and sounds of dancing echoing down the hills. She bent low and whispered to the sands, commanding the shores to hide themselves from the Greeks, to spread the rumors to the other shores that this island didn't hold warriors, and, if the Greeks came, to refuse them safe harbor. With one final look and a sigh, Thetis prayed that her plan would work, that Achilles would be safe.
Kira's necklace and bracelets dangled and clanged as she sat across from Didamia and ran her fingers through her hair. Didamia, the eldest daughter of Lake Amides, liked Pyrrha, the daughter of Thetis, her family agreed to foster half a year ago. It was odd that Pyrrha's family apparently couldn't be bothered to think of a better name and had just gone with Pyrrha, which meant the red-headed girl. Still, Pyrrha had come by her room often and the girls had grown close over time. There was also something exciting about the young woman. The first time they touched during a dance, Didamia was drawn to Pyrrha. She didn't understand the feelings, but she liked them. Pyrrha must have felt it too, because afterwards, she found Didamia, and the girls became fast friends. They would stay up late into the night, Didamia teaching Pyrrha how to work wool, play music, and all the other things that Pyrrha would need to know to win a husband someday soon. For the daughter of a goddess, the girl didn't seem to know anything. Tonight, however, Didamia was simply combing out Pyrrha's hair. They were all kept separate from any men in the household, and the women could freely move between rooms. In fact, they thought they were in for the evening when they heard boots come running past. Didamia shot up to see what the commotion was about, while Pyrrha lingered behind. As it turned out, they weren't locked in there at all. Not that night. That night, there was a visitor. All the daughters of Lycomedes entered the hall alongside their strange, super-tall, broad-shouldered friend. Apparently, there was a guest on Syros. An honored one, too, it seemed, to summon up all the daughters from their home. Achilles had seen the crowds in the streets lining the walk up to the capital. Whoever this was, it was a big deal. Like, legendary hero big. Like Perseus, Hercules, or Theseus. Argonaut. Slayer of the Minotaur, and now the former king of Athens strode past the daughters of Lycomedes. He stopped at Pyrrha. He could barely hear King Lycomedes over the crowd that continued cheering for him. This girl was some sister of Achilles, the one they were all looking for. Thetis had sent her here to be fostered in safety. It was a big deal. Theseus smirked and nodded, continuing on. It was later that evening when the disguised Achilles learned the real reason Theseus was on the island. In fact, everyone learned the reason, including King Lycomedes. Achilles studied King Lycomedes' face as Theseus talked. It grew more and more grim. The smile, wide and strained, no longer matched the eyes. Theseus was staying here. He was going to retire on the island. Sister of Achilles, you say, Theseus asked later on, passing the girl known as Pyrrha in the palace. Achilles nodded. I would have liked to meet your brother. Half the world is out looking for him right now. Can't imagine you know where he is. I heard he trained her to Chiron, like the best of them. But, you know, Chiron can only teach you so much. He can teach you to be a warrior, an archer, even a survivor. But he can't teach you to be a king. Yep, if Achilles were here, instead of you, I might be tempted to invite him out to my new home on the southern edge of the island. I'm retiring there, but I'm not useless. There's a lot I could teach a young man like that. How to not only be a hero, but a king. Huh, I wonder how long your brother will endure his fearful mother's plan to keep him away from the world, locked away someplace in unmanly captivity, while men like his friend Patroclus go off to war and win glory that should have been his. Theseus pursed his lips and nodded to Pyrrha. Yep, it's really too bad he's not here. With that, 
Theseus continued on his way, leaving Achilles speechless in the hallway. The next time Achilles saw Theseus, King Lycomedes was leading the former king out to see his property. Unfortunately, that was also the last time Achilles ever saw Theseus. King Lycomedes explained that it was all just a horrible tragedy. The former king of Athens had slipped on the rocks and died just like his father, plummeting into the Aegean. At the news, Achilles almost flew into a rage, but he quickly refrained. It would draw too much attention, and he couldn't blow his cover. He had to let it go. Biting his lip, he dipped and left the room. The following night, the revels of Dionysus took place. Achilles was still seething from the whole situation. He let his mother put him here, powerless. And what had she done? Left again. On top of that, he watched one of the greatest names of his generation come here to live out his life in peace, only to die. Did no one's story end up truly great? What would his own story be after he had been left here by his mother? Now, men weren't allowed at the festival of Dionysus. It was a celebration of the god of wine, and only women were invited. At this point, Achilles disguised as Pyrrha had too much to drink as it was, and stood, squinting as he scanned the crowd. He couldn't stand feeling powerless and full of despair for his name and his future any longer. Tonight, he would feel like a man. That's when he saw her. Didamia. He had wanted to be with her since the moment he spotted her on the street. Of course, the festival was loud, so Didamia had to read it on Pyrrha's wine-stained lips. She wanted to talk. Didamia was shocked by how strong Pyrrha's grip was as she led the eldest daughter of Lycomedes into a secluded grove. The festival still booming beyond the trees. Pyrrha didn't wait. After the long hours spent together, after the confusing way she felt about the girl, Didamia wasn't surprised by the kiss. She was, however, very surprised when Pyrrha slipped off her tunic and there was more to her than Didamia. Achilles kissed her again as he took off the bracelets, necklace, his real name, he said, was Achilles. Didemia pushed him away. What was he doing? He embraced her again. What was he doing? More like what was she doing? He was Achilles. Come on, he knew she was feeling it too. Didemia pushed him away again, but this time he held on to her arm. That was really different. That's when she thought he was a woman. Not when it would lead to something like this. She was the firstborn daughter of the king. She couldn't just... But Achilles kissed her again. She yelled out for her sisters. For the other women. But her cries only melted into the wine-soaked cacophony from beyond the trees. No one could hear her. And no one could help her. to stop here for a moment. Greco-Roman myth has a lot of sexual assault, but so rarely is it ever so clearly and unavoidably depicted as sexual assault by the ancient writers. This particular instance is from the Achilliad, an epic poem by the Roman writer Publius Papinius Statius in the first century AD. It's not glossed over like a lot of Zeus's liaisons, where they simply say he seduced an unwilling woman and move on. Here, it's very clear that, as soon as she discovers it's Achilles, Didamia doesn't want anything to happen. She makes it very clear. 
but Achilles makes the wrong choice and ignores her, focusing only on his own feelings of powerlessness and frustration about being trapped in the household of Lycomedes while the world leaves him behind. And so, having just finished a soliloquy about how unmanned he feels, he forces himself on Didamia and crosses the line. It's a rare bit of psychological realism we get from these stories, and unfortunately, it's a horrifying bit, given the subject matter. Didamia recruited her nurse, told her what happened, and she stayed far away from Achilles after that night. For days, the event replayed in her mind, always at the front of her thoughts. And then, something changed. She waited a few weeks to confirm it, but it was true. Didamia was pregnant. She was pregnant with the child of Achilles. I like to think that Achilles was deeply ashamed, given how the main story frames the incident, and that he begged Didamia's forgiveness, but we don't know. What we do know was that the couple was reconciled, whether it was because she actually forgave him or because she was now forcibly tied to him forever, given his assault and the fiercely unforgiving patriarchal society, is unknown for sure. Although, honestly, one seems more likely than the other. As it turns out, the nurse was the perfect person to recruit for this whole mess. She ran interference for Didamia for months, making up excuse after excuse and explaining away the morning sickness and weight gain until Didamia carried the baby to term and gave birth. It was a baby boy. You could hide from men. You could hide from the greatest army the 12th century BC world had ever known, but you couldn't hide from the gods. Everyone knew this. So when the Achaeans, the Greeks, assembled, and there was one blaring person missing, they turned to the gods for help. They all knew the prophecies. It was said that this man, this boy, Achilles, would turn the tide of war. He would kill Hector, Priam's son, the prince of Troy. And so Agamemnon, the leader of the Achaean forces, had tasked Odysseus and Diomedes with finding the boy. Maybe Odysseus felt a pang of guilt, Maybe the whole idea of dragging a boy out from hiding to fight in a war didn't sit well. Or maybe, when he heard the prophecy and received his task, Odysseus saw himself as an agent of fate. After all, he was smart enough to know that you didn't defy a prophecy. And they were all stuck in this war together now. So they needed every advantage they could get. With renewed determination, Odysseus set off, believing he was now an instrument of the gods. And therefore, blameless. Maybe he considered these things as his boat dropped anchor just off Syros. Quietly, Odysseus and Diomedes rowed ashore alone, leaving their crew aboard the main ship so as to not alarm the quiet town ruled by King Lycomedes. It was announced that two kings, Odysseus and Diomedes, would be guests in the house for the night, and Achilles' heart leapt. It was late when the men arrived, making their way to the palace and walking past Lycomedes' assembled daughters. Odysseus took the lead, talking loudly about their preparations for war. Lycomedes lamented that he was too old to go himself, and he only had daughters. He surveyed his gathered offspring. He was eager for the day when they'd start bearing him grandsons, 
Odysseus smirked. He understood Lycomedes' desire. Who wouldn't burn to see countless nations, captains, and kings assembled for a common cause? They had stripped the mountains bare of trees for their ships and weapons. Never had fame been in such supply, or glory been so bountiful. Whoever was proud of their name and ancestry, whoever could handle a horse and a bow, could have his name live on for generations. Timid mothers couldn't hold back the proud and the strong. Oh, and for men who stayed back in safety, as this new glory passed them by, such a man would be condemned to languish in despair, condemned by both gods and men. Lycomedes nodded and looked from side to side. That was an oddly specific speech. Thank you, Odysseus. Out in the crowd of daughters, Didamia was holding Achilles back. He couldn't see through the obvious propaganda and recruitment efforts trying to draw him out, but she could. Luckily, she was saved by her father at the last moment. When he announced that the women should get to bed, Odysseus held up a hand. He had gifts. Ah, but he accidentally left them on the ship. Could he come back and see the daughters in the light of day? Like me, he smiled and nodded. Sure. The next morning, Achilles was resolute. He was staying. He had stayed up all night with Didamia and his son. He both loved it and hated it here. He hated it because he was forced to be everything he wasn't. But he loved it for them. He loved Didamia, and together they had had a son, a child. So as much as he yearned for glory, he couldn't leave them. He wouldn't. At least he would try to convince himself that that was what he wanted. Standing before Odysseus with the other daughters of Lycomedes, Achilles repeated his resolution over and over in his head. Didamia had pulled him toward the back, where he wouldn't be readily noticed, and there she held his hand tightly. Odysseus had brought gifts, he announced, but since he didn't know the daughters personally, they were welcome to choose for themselves. Achilles looked on the table. It contained all sorts of jewels, perfumes, ointments, musical instruments, gifts that Odysseus knew would appeal to the trained and proper princesses of Lycomedes' court. There was also something else. Achilles wrenched himself free from Didamia's grasp and stepped forward toward the table. He met eyes with Odysseus. What was that? The Ithacan king smiled. That was a spear. It belonged to a great man, a man Odysseus's father fought alongside on the deck of the Argo, a man whose name deserved to live on. It was the spear of Peleus. Achilles picked up the spear. He left it at Chiron's cave long ago. All this time, he thought it was lost. And now, as he stood beside it, a thought struck him. He was now big enough to wield the mighty weapon. In fact, the spear was just the right size. He looked up slowly to lock eyes with Odysseus. We've been looking for you, said the king. Are you ready to go? Achilles nodded. He had tried to hide it, tried to fight it, but it had always been his fate. And now, he was sure. A cry came up from the back of the group. It was Didamia. What about her? After what he had done to her? After his son? Achilles was already unclipping the bracelets and the necklace. He was nodding. It was difficult, he knew, but he was doing this for them. For their son. When he returned from Troy, they could be together again. He turned to Lycomedes, who was barely keeping his rage in check in light of Odysseus and Diomedes, and announced that 
when he returned, he would marry Princess Didamia. He would make it right. He was going out to win glory for both his wife-to-be and his son, but also Lycomedes. With that, Achilles turned back to the woman he loved. He would be coming back. He promised. Odysseus, for all of his words, was silent on the way back to the ship. He could only think of Achilles, of the young son the boy had kissed goodbye on the beach. The young man gripped his father's spear and said his mother had told him of the prophecy. He would go to war against the Trojans. She might be afraid, but he was not. There was glory enough for everyone. Odysseus watched the horizon, following it to the ship that waited ready to carry them to the rest of the fleet. They had found Achilles, and he would win glory. He would turn the tide of war and kill Hector, the prince of Troy. But there was something that he did not know. He didn't know that all that glory, his victories, would come at a price. He didn't know he wouldn't be returning to his budding family. Didn't know that the prophets had spoken further, that this war would cost him his life. yeah, we are just about there. I need to look at the sources, but I think next time, we're going to be at the very start of the Trojan War, with the Greeks assembled outside Troy. I want to say thanks to Bissian, ALR33, James Picanu, Jellybean54, Chef Mikeinator, Sunada, Reb Backy, Dangerous, Rand Rifter, and Stevie Wolf for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for the reviews, and if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. You can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There is also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a horse mask squirrel feeder, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show that will not make your backyard squirrels look like they have giant grinning horse heads, spawning stories of yet another mythological creature to fear. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Mahdi Doo from the Isle of Man. The Mahdi-Doo is a black spaniel the size of a dire wolf that, I would say, haunts, but really just seems to lounge around Peel Castle on the Isle of Man. Sure, the Mahdi-Doo is a giant black dog with glowing red eyes that can instantly appear in any room in the castle, and that's scary. But honestly, the more you look into it, the Mahdi-Doo just seems like one big good boy. It's said to engender terror and despair when encountered in the halls of the castle, but as far as I can tell, that's really only if you come to work drunk. It's less of a monstrous specter and more just like a really committed supervisor to the guards of the castle. Back in the 1700s, the Mahdi Doo would appear when the candles in the guards' quarters were first lit for the night, and it became such a common occurrence that the guards stopped being afraid of him. But mostly, you see, the Mahdi Doo liked to keep things PG-13 and made it very clear that he didn't like the soldier's language. He was like a giant swear jar, but with glowing red eyes that would absolutely maul you. The last spotting in the castle was when one of the guards got drunk on duty and decided to ignore protocol and went by himself to lock up the castle. The Mahdi Doo must have had an impromptu HR meeting because that man returned pale and terrified. He was apparently so terror-stricken that three days later, he died. 
So yeah, the Mahdi-Doo is generally a good boy. Unless you catch him wearing his HR supervisor hat. Then all bets are off. That's it for today. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. And I want to say thanks again to Omaha Steaks for sponsoring today's episode. This Father's Day, give Dad a gift packed with the Omaha Steaks he craves. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter code LEGENDS in the search bar for 74% off the Father's Day Steak Fix gift package. That's a $235 value, now for only $59.99. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com and type LEGENDS in the search bar to get the Father's Day Steak Fix package today. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.